Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Christocentric, based out of our study on the book of Philippians. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Lord, it's our prayer that you would speak to us through the preaching of your word this morning. We honor your word as holy, infallible, inspired. Lord, we say that that you are ultimately our teacher. You set the standard. So, Lord, correct us. Confront us, encourage us, spur us on. You speak, you have your way. Lord, guard my lips as I do my best to expound upon your word. Lord, if I trip and stumble, I pray it would just slide past. But Holy Spirit, where you are speaking, we pray, convict us. We ask for Holy Spirit conviction this morning. We've got to have you. We've got to have you in our midst. Holy Spirit, it's in Jesus' precious and wonderful name that we pray. Amen. 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 Almost all agree that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the greatest preacher of the 20th century. He was a Welshman, spent most of his life preaching in London in the famous Westminster Chapel. He's not called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones because he had spent years in theological training. He was a trained physician, a doctor. And on track to be a very successful one at that. For two years, he struggled with a call to ministry. And he wrestled with this idea that he should step away from a prestigious and promising career to serve in the ministry. And he finally decided to pursue it. And many asked him when he did why he didn't just continue on as a physician and give generously to the church and influence people as he practiced medicine. They said, why not just be a a Christian physician and so into the kingdom and then some said how do you know that you'll even be able to preach at all how do you know that you're called to be a preacher and his primary answer was that it wasn't about whether he was going to be a great preacher or a poor preacher he was deeply convicted that the gospel message was not being preached and that it needed to be it wasn't about whether he would be a great communicator or a poor communicator it was about a message that needed to be proclaimed And he said that there was a message burning within him that had to be proclaimed again. And he preached to thousands in London. Many college students would show up to Westminster Chapel with their Bibles. Thousands would sit and listen to him. He was an uh, old-timey expositor, verse line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Sometimes would spend a whole year in one chapter of the Bible as he, like with precise logic, just worked through it. He believed in preaching. He called it logic on fire, using reason, but a spirit-birthed and spirit-empowered reason that preaching should be logical and we should really wrestle with the Scriptures say, but it should be bathed and birthed in the power of God. And he was a Calvinist, and that's a from a theological perspective that embraces predestination. And that's a different theological camp than our own and this week I listened to a, a rather young, arrogant pastor. He couldn't have been 10 years older than me. He was just a little arrogant little brat. Little... I'm just kidding. He wasn't at all. 
was just young. Um, he was lecturing on the life of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And they lovingly called him the doctor. Some called him the 13th apostle, which was a big statement. Again, the greatest preacher of the 20th century. And I lay in bed at night, travailing, interceding in prayer. God, please let my kids sleep through the night. In Jesus' name. The heavens are brass, y'all. They keep getting up. Um, For an hour, I listened to him and just loved his lecture. It was beautiful. And the preacher was clearly from a Reformed background or a Calvinistic background and was preaching to a crowd of folks with this, from the same kind of perspective. And for quite some time, maybe an hour, he spoke of Dr. Jones with great respect and reverence. And I, I loved it, really enjoyed it. Um, but as it began to close, he encouraged all the attendees to read everything Jones has written. Read all of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to as much of his preaching as you can. After all, he preached with real gospel power. And then he put a big but, but he cautioned them. Remember that all men have flaws, and Dr. Jones's flaw was this, that he believed that people can still operate in the gifts of the Spirit. He seemed to be fond of the charismatics. He loved revival. They called, they called him a Finian, which is a reference to Charles Finney, um, meaning that there's emotionalism that follows revival at times. I personally don't think being called a Finian is that big of a slap in the face. Finney really shook some things up as he preached, man. Um, But he said that he prayed for revival and he loved Wesley and Whitfield. And he also taught that people can be baptized in the Holy Ghost and experience that could be after salvation. Now, I'm not a Calvinist. But I do believe with Dr. Jones that the gifts of the Spirit are for the church today. I think that we ought to long for revival. It's my prayer that God would send a good old timey revival to our community. The kind that Whitfield and Edwards experienced. And I do believe that a man or woman can still be baptized in the power of the Holy Ghost. And I don't think that being called one who follows Charles Finney is such a bad thing. There were some theological things that were a little messy at times. But these remarks are common from time to time of our brothers and sisters. You guys know those those camps are fully brothers and sisters in the Christ who we should honor and learn from and listen to. And I listen to them all the time. Um, so, but those kind of comments are common, and, and as I lay in bed listening to it, I thought it's a bit ironic, illogical even, to say out of one side of your mouth that this man is the best preacher of the last 100 years, and he preached with real power, fire, anointing. There was a presence of God on his life. He had precise exegesis, impeccable logic, and then to say, but he was imbalanced after all. He just wanted revival. They said once he laid his hand on another preacher and asked that God would baptize him in the Holy Ghost. And that was something that should be strayed from. And as I thought, I wondered if it's fair to really chop up a man of God like that. To say that all of his power and preaching was in his reformed theology and none of it was in his heart for revival. I think as I listen to Dr. Jones, I hear a real cry for God to move again. They say that his father, Dr. Jones's father, wasn't so fond of the Methodist movement of the day. And Dr. Jones in an interview clarified that it wasn't that his father wasn't fond of Methodism. His father wasn't f- fond of the fact that Methodism had walked away from the real power of God. That the preaching had become all about social justice and not about people actually being born again and experiencing and knowing God. He said that his father responded to Methodism in one way and pushed away from it. But he responded to Methodism by restoring that old message again that the power of God 
in the gospel still changes hearts and lives today. That the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that the presence of the Holy Spirit is on the earth today and available today. And we should cry out, travail even for the power of God. He That was a deep conviction of his life. And I thought, I don't know that you can really hear a man, really listen to a man's preaching and cut out pieces of his heart and say, he was the best, but he believed for revival. I think, no, that was really a part of who he was. And in their defense, they could say to me, yes, Caleb, but you love him and and believe him and then cut out his Calvinism. And that maybe would be a fair rebuke. Touche, my friend, touche. But as we study the book of Philippians, um, we're starting a series that we're calling Christocentric. Um, and that's a theological term that primarily is used to talk about a hermeneutic, a specific hermeneutic or interpretation of Scripture. It means that as you study Scripture, you read it from a Christ-centered lens. Um, but I'm using the word to really describe the heart posture of Paul. And as we read his words, I want us to try to really listen to the heart of the man, the like... The core of his being, the core values, the core aspirations and longings and desires. And that was my point with Dr. Jones is is like, I don't think you can really hear him and not hear his core value, which was revival in the earth again. A revival, yes, of reformed theology, but a revival of the power of God in, um, in his community. That was the core of him. And I think... You know, those famous passages from Philippians are, we can talk about Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You move back to Philippians 3, um, I count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. It's all rubbish except for to know Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, that famous passage that Jesus humbled himself and um, on the last day he will be exalted. He has been given the name that is above every name. And every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. As you, as we study the doctrine and kind of hear this practical letter that Paul is bringing, you constantly hear this like Christocentric, gospel-centered core to the man like it's all really about Jesus it's all really about the gospel being proclaimed chapter one there are some who preach the gospel out of selfish ambition I don't care as long as the gospel of Christ is proclaimed you find this core center of Paul in the letter that that's really my intention that we explore um, as we study the book of first first Philippians as we study the book of Philippians So let's read from Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read this morning verses 1 through 11. um, And then we'll kind of dive in here and try to really grasp. um, Specifically, we're going to focus on verse 5. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for all of you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. 
to the glory and the praise of God. Now, again, in kind of Dr. Jones fashion here, we're going to focus on a single phrase from verse five. That phrase because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, I need to do a little teachy stuff to kind of get us where we're going. Um, Gordon Fee is a New Testament scholar, and in his commentary on Philippians, rather than first rebuilding the immediate historical context of the book, which we will work on next week, next week we'll try to go back to Acts and understand what happened when Paul planted the church at Philippi, what are the surrounding events, we'll try to explore a little bit. There's a big debate whether Paul's in prison at Rome or in Ephesus as he writes this book, but But Gordon Fee encouraged us to first look at the literary style of the letter um, and to allow that to speak to us. So I I thought that would be appropriate as we approach this specific line because of your partnership in the gospel from today on. The type of letter that Paul is writing is really common. It's just called a letter of friendship. In the Greco-Roman world, imagine... They didn't have Facebook, okay? They didn't have the Instagram. I know y'all are some grammars out there. They didn't have the Instagram. Um, they wrote letters, and it was very important that you understood how to write a letter well. And so we have lists of different types and styles of letters that children would be taught in the Greco-Roman world. They were taught how to write letters. The most common type of letter that, you, that would be written in the Greco-Roman world is what's called a letter of friendship. And that's what we have written here. It's a letter of friendship. And so... Um, Fee, for example, explores um, Aristotle's kind of philosophical ideas of what friendship was and what did friendship mean in that culture. And it does have some different nuances than what we experience perfectly in our culture. The friendship that Paul is expressing as he writes a letter of friendship, this kind of this type of literary style thing that's being put together, it's not particularly artistic. It's not like he's trying to be particularly dogmatically logical he is trying to explain his current situation he's asking about their current situation there's this intimate fellowship that's being explored this friendship that's being explored and first it is intimate it is vulnerable paul is telling them that there are some people who are opposing me right now many people have abandoned me and so in that sense paul is in a place of vulnerability explaining to them that he does have some opposition And in Greco-Roman friendship, for Paul to have opposition meant that that opposition was also the opposition of the Philippian church. They had a, in, in, not in Paul's language, but in the cultural language, they were common enemies. I don't think Paul would have used the word enemy, although he does talk about enemies of the gospel. But there were common oppositions that they were shared, and they shared resources. So the Philippian church is sending money and aid to Paul as he's in jail. They're... They're risking, investing to try to build this relationship. We find Paul sending Ephroditus back to the Philippians, very concerned with his health. Philippians 4, verses 2 through 3, for example, um, Paul says, Yes, I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me. They have labored with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are also in the book of life. Sophie says it's actually pretty important that you understand kind of what's going on through these literary devices, that there's this relationship that's being explored through the letter, that Paul is encouraging this intimate friendship, this 
partnership and, and, and there are different nuances and, and things happening in that friendship that we miss. And so the first thing I want to kind of point out is that Fee tells us that we need to explore the literary type and, um, N.T. Wright, another New Testament scholar, tells us that um, in verse 5, which we'll focus on, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, that word partnership is the word, it's from the word koinonia, which we talk about all the time in church culture. Koinonia is a word that we use to express fellowship and intimacy. When you talk about ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church, the church should have a unique koinonia, a unique fellowship that we really love each other beyond shallow means, but we know each other and love each other. We talk about koinonia a lot, but N.T. Wright points out that the word koinonia in the Greco-Roman world is most often translated um, as partnership, and it carries with it the idea of business partners. People who had koinonia were most often business partners, and many times the word Koinonia in scripture, like here, it's translated as partners. It doesn't just say you're my friends in the gospel. And that's the way that we think of fellowship, friendship, sitting down and having dinner. Although that's a part of fellowship and it's beautiful, but it says you're my partners in the gospel. Business-like partners in the gospel. It's my work. The gospel consumes my life and ambition. It's my work, man. It's also your work, Paul says to the Philippian church. We have a mutual work. We're not only deep, intimate friends. We're business-like partners in this work. You partner with me in the gospel. Koinonia, N.T. Wright is teaching us, is not just about friendship, although it is that. But what the church of today has missed is that koinonia is also about partnership. About putting your hand to the plow. Again, Wright points out that Philippians and Paul, according to verse 5, are business-like partners in the gospel. They are, yes, partakers of the grace business, and they are in the business of propagating this gospel message. According to verse 7, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So in Paul's day, this meant sharing in the work. This meant sharing in the responsibility. This meant sharing in the vision. This meant sharing in the finances, the financial responsibility of the work. The Philippian church is sowing financially into Paul's life. In Paul's day, you would pray for the health and the well-being of your partners because their success was your success. And if your partner failed, then you failed because you had a common mutual business endeavor. There was something that you were both invested in. And so you needed to know what was going on in their life. And they needed to know what was going on in your life. And you needed to encourage one another. And you needed to like show up. You gave to projects. You labored in prayer. For God's sake, the church today needs to learn to be prayer partners in the gospel work. Partners of the gospel, partners in the gospel, labor in prayer that God would move in their cities and move through their missionaries. There's a laboring that takes place in partnership. So again, Gordon Fee tells us to consider the friendship dynamic of this letter. And then N.T. Wright tells us that this word partner really really means a business like 
partner, a sharer in the work, someone who's invested financially, emotionally in the dream and vision of the work. There is a deep fellowship that Paul shares with the Philippian church, but that deep fellowship to some extent is found in the partnership. So many times we say to our churches today, our churches aren't really that loving. We don't really know each other. And I think it's fair to say that we don't really know each other because we don't really partner with one another. John laid his head on the breast of Jesus. And then he got up in the morning and walked with Jesus where he was going. Sometimes the disciples are out trying to find food. Sometimes the disciples are standing with Jesus as he preached and laying their hands on the sick. John really knew Jesus. John was also a partner with Jesus. The church doesn't know each other in our modern culture today, but the church also doesn't really partner with one another within our local church context. We have become consumers. Not partners. The question that our text today, just this one little line, will force us to ask of ourselves is Am I really a partner in the gospel? Or am I a mere consumer? Am I a partner in the gospel? Now, that's a hard question to ask yourself, but the, the text requires that you ask it. Are you a gospel partner? So quickly, for a moment, we'll do our best to unpack all that gospel partner meant to Paul and meant to the Philippian church. First, we have to ask ourselves, what is the gospel and what is the goal of the gospel? Now, that seems like a rather elementary question, but it can be quite complex. The Greek word um, euangelion means good news, and we know that. We always say the gospel is the good news. We get that. But to unpack that good news in a concise manner can be a bit of a challenge. Dr. Jones, in an exposition on Romans verses one, one, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, you know, the um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. Um, he said this that the gospel is good news. And Dr. Jones says that the gospel must be the best news you have ever heard. And if the gospel is not the best news that you have ever heard, and if that good news does not consume your life, then you might not really be a Christian. Dr. Jones said, if the best news of all of history is the gospel, and if that good news does not consume you, then you might not really understand the news. Is the gospel the best news you've ever heard in your life this morning? Does it drive all of your personal ambitions? Is it rooted and grounded in the core of who you are? And the truth of the matter is that before we come to Christ, we are all spiritual zombies dead in a coma-like stupor. We live life in a coma-like stupor outside of Jesus. We are rebels from the Garden of Eden on, chasing our own desires, always hungry and thirsty, but never quenched. Desperate for some kind of high, some kind of personal fulfillment. Pursuing success, like more success would make me feel fulfilled, self-fulfilled. But when the mic drops and our bed hits the pillow, we are desperately hollow. Humanity is broken. That is a verifiable fact. We are desperately hollow. And guilty. 
God is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and we have sinned against him. We are hollow and guilty. And God, rather than just releasing his wrath on us rebels, which would have been justifiable, he, through the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, puts on flesh and he lives totally holy, yet completely kind. He touches lepers and leprosy vanishes. He touches the blind and they begin to see. Even dead men get up out of their graves at the sound of his voice. He breaks bread and feeds thousands of people. He rebukes the religious man strongly. And shows compassion and grace to the broken person. He was totally perfect, totally righteous. And he submit himself to a cruel death, a harsh death on your behalf. Naked, mocked, bruised. He crawls on the cross of Calvary and pours out his blood for you. What does that mean to you? That the blood of this perfect, righteous man hit the ground of Calvary for you because of you. The nails that tore his flesh really belong to you, you know. He's taking your punishment. And every one of us will face this truth sooner or later. That this incredibly gracious and kind man God put on flesh was brutally murdered so that you would not have to experience punishment. And the world today rejects this great act of love and we continue on in our spiritual stupor. But the Christian community must be enthralled with this singular truth that God in perfect love has given his wonderful son Jesus to experience a cruel and harsh, brutal death on our behalves. To invite us back into relationship with him. That the world is dead, hollow, and guilty, yet can be washed totally and completely can be brought into a new covenant which would cause even the most coma-like stuperman to sit up and have life and life abundantly. So that the fallen can escape their own misery, their future punishment. So that we could taste real intimacy and really know God. So that this itch we have would be satisfied in really knowing Jesus. Remember Augustine saying that we all have this hole in our hearts that's only fulfilled by intimate relationship, intimate knowledge with God. My point is this, that we'll never become gospel partners if you're not moved by the blood of Jesus shed for you on the cross of Calvary. We cannot be gospel partners if we are not enthralled and obsessed with the gospel. Let's start there. How moved are we as a church by the gospel? Do you remember your bondage? Do you remember the shame? Do you remember what it was like to feel totally unloved, undervalued, never appreciated? Do you remember what it was like to feel guilty, ashamed, embarrassed, to have to hide? And do you remember the night that he drew you to himself? Do you still live in the joy you found on the day that you received his grace and left shame behind? Do you consider the weight of your own sin often and rejoice in the fact that you'll never experience the punishment for it? How appreciative are you? The Moravians, that old missionary movement, remember they had a continual prayer movement for a hundred years. They used to say this, he's worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. 
That means that they lived with all of their lives to see the blood of Jesus wash more sinners. That the throne room would be filled with thousands from every tribe, nation, and tongue who exalt and praise Jesus. That somehow the praise of Jesus would be more weighty, would carry more weight, would come from more voices in more chests because of their work. That more people would come alive and fall in love with Jesus because of their partnership with the church and with the Holy Ghost. In the gospel. And for us, our mission statement is rather clear. We, as a church, singularly desire that this community would be totally messed up for the glory of God. That this community would experience and know the truth of the gospel and have a fresh encounter with the power of the Holy Ghost. We are after folks really being washed of their shame and guilt. Delivered from their addiction. Filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. And then commissioned to partner with us and seeing God do it again. We are obsessed with this process of being born again, set free, filled with the Holy Ghost. And we just want to keep seeing this process happen again and again. This is the process that we are obsessed with. But partners in the gospel are Again, enthralled with the gospel. They're ate up with the gospel. It consumes their basic sense of identity and purpose. Gospel partners are consumed with this basic message. All of their life's purpose and work revolves around this. That Jesus washes sinners, causes us to come to life again. If I ask you this morning, why are you alive? What would your response be? That would be very telling. Just off the cuff. What are you living for today? I thought as I was in the shower this morning and praying, not this morning, but the other morning. I'm very hygienic, if you didn't know that. I'm just a very hygienic man. It's, it's just wonderful. <laughs> Hallelujah. I do forget deodorant about four times a week, though. I'll be having to store it at my desk at work. I was in the shower, and I, and I was praying and kind of communing with God, and I, and I felt... and. I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, what are your aspirations? And I felt like what the Holy Spirit was saying to me and for the church is to ask the church this. What are your aspirations? Like, like really, personally, what, what are your aspirations? What are, you, what are you living for? What are your five-year hopes, ten-year hopes? What are the things that you lay at night dreaming about? Like, what really are your aspirations? If you say I'm climbing the corporate ladder, well, that's not a bad aspiration, but it is a bad aspiration to be at the core of your being. It's a very bad singular aspiration. I have aspirations to be a good father. That's a good aspiration to be a good husband. That's a great aspiration. But the core aspiration of my life must be the gospel of Jesus being proclaimed to the four corners of the earth. If that is not the core of our aspiration, we are not gospel partners. We are consumers. Next. Partners share in the weight of responsibility. I used to fry chicken at Publix. Haley loves a man in a hairnet. Sometimes when I come home, I put a hairnet on for her and I strut around the house. Really gets her going. Woo. 
Publix closes at 10, and the rule in Publix is that if a customer comes to the counter at 10.05 and wants fresh fried chicken, the, the employee has to fry the chicken, even though the store was supposed to close 10 minutes ago. Now, I got paid by the hour, and by 10, I'm ready to go home. So if a customer came to the deli at 10.05 and wanted me to fry chicken, I did not greet them with pleasantries. I hid in the freezer and ate the leftover banana pudding. <laughs> Forgive me, Lord, I've sinned. I'm not trying to be there for another 15 minutes frying, and I dirty that fryer. It's going to take me 20 minutes to clean it up. I'm trying to make a buck and go home. I was not a partner. Just part-time help. Partners are committed to the success of the mission. They stay late, work hard, dream of more. Paul and the Philippian church both shared the weight of responsibility. Neither party was a mere recipient Both parties labored. In Western culture, at the very center of our society, we are consumers. And we have allowed that cultural distinctive to seep into our churches. Our worship team is not here to entertain you. And I am not a comedian. Some of you are like, you ain't funny anyway. And you are not the consumer. And it's a shame that our pastors and leaders for so long have allowed us to embrace this mentality. And many churches are working hard to correct it, not throwing stones, just acknowledging that is a problem. I am not selling you my personality or gift. I'm not trying to sell you something. I'm not trying to get you to buy a membership to the church. I do not want to lead a church of consumers. I want to lead a church of gospel partners. gospel partners you don't show up to be just to be fed we do show up to encourage to study the scriptures together you don't merely show up on sunday and hope that micah and the worship team brings a great song that gives you chills and i bring a message that maybe gives you a little nugget for the week that is not the primary goal you are supposed to partner with me you are not consumers You are supposed to labor with me alongside our elders, alongside our leaders to reach this city. It's not about any one man on a stage, any singular gifting. For God's sake, we could use a good dose of pastors with zero charisma. I pray God send us a good herd of nerds to stand behind the pulpit because we've celebrated personalities for too long. Your partner's in the work, man. been around many churches where the congregation constantly complains about the leadership not here praise God at least not to me keep complaining to each other don't bring it to me that's good I'm good with that but friends of ours who work at a a fairly large church says their pastor tells the congregation all the time don't come to me with a problem come with a solution and if you come to me with a problem you come with a solution you are now the person who gets to fulfill the solution you are the solution Because you're not a consumer. Don't be afraid to take out trash now again. Pick up a mug. Lead a connect group, man. Join an outreach team. Show up early. Show up consistently. Like, can you imagine having a business partner who doesn't show up for work? It's, 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 I'm being harsh again. I feel the anointing of harsh. If you don't know me, just plug your ears for a second. This is for you who know me. 50 years ago to miss church twice a year was a big deal. Today, to come to church twice a month is a big deal. 
We're consumers, we're not partners. Partners show up. Partners are invested. Partners just don't lay awake at night wondering why the elders aren't inviting their neighbors, waiting for the elders to come up with a great marketing plan. Why isn't Caleb doing more in the community? Partners lay up at night praying, God, show me a neighbor to invite. Partners show up at things like this food truck night with the neighbor that they invited. Even if their neighbor doesn't come, they still show up praying that someone will step onto this property with a need or a burden that they can minister to. Partners are invested, man. They partake in the work and in the ministry. I'm after partnership. Show up. If you are a regular part of this body, take some ownership. My friend and mentor, uh, someone who's pastored me, who I was working with at at the same time, there was a bit of drama in the ministry that we were working with. And we were sitting in his office one day trying to sort through it. And he said to me this, he said, Caleb, he said that only those in the boat without a paddle in their hand have time to rock the boat. He said, people in the boat with a paddle in their hand are far too busy rowing. And if the boat has an issue, people with a paddle run to the issue and fix it and strengthen it. They don't just sit around rocking, complaining, and griping. He said what the church needs desperately today is some partners who put paddles in their hands. I'm supposed to be done, but I'm going to talk for another minute, so you just get over it. We'll never see our vision come to pass if we view our staff, leadership, elders as the sole ministers of the house. We believe in the Ephesians 4 model that apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers' job is to equip the saints to do the work. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are officially a saint. And congratulations, you have a new job to be a gospel partner. It's your job to do the work. Don't you put your responsibility on me alone. It's your job to show up. It's your job to be involved. It's your job to pray. It's your job to come to me with a burn in your heart and say, there's a part of our community that I think we could reach, and I want to be the person to lead it. That's your responsibility. If we are not fruitful, you don't get to point at me and say, I'm not funny enough, or I'm not good looking enough. Everybody knows I'm good looking enough, praise God. It ain't that. Hallelujah. And just to roll along with the idea, partners participate in the financial burden of the work. The Philippian church here, Paul says, you are my gospel partners. You're the only church, he'll say later, who has partnered with me. Their, their partnership is a partnership in the ministry. They're sending someone to check on Paul, to hear from Paul. They do talk a little theology. What should we be doing? But there's also a financial burden that's being shared by the church and the apostle. There's a financial partnership. Christians live sacrificially. They give sacrificially of their time, energy, sweat, and their finances to see the kingdom of God advance. Tithing is a biblical principle that we believe in because we believe in seeing local churches built up and reaching their communities. That that is the biblical model of the gospel being advanced in cities for local churches to thrive. It's a shame today that so many have abused the church in order to have three jets and dress in the finest clothes. I agree with you on that. 
That's why I'm saying sow into your local church. If you're out of, if you're on vacation this week and you just came because you're here, sow into your local church. We give to missionaries. We give to those who are need, who are, who are needy. I don't sow into any ministry where a man has four jets and a suit. And by the way, I don't have a suit. I have a 2004. I don't have a jet or a suit. I'm going to get a suit one day, praise God. But I'm never going to have a jet. I have a 2004 Toyota Highlander that used to be my mother-in-law's, and it smells like fish, okay? Because she is gross. (laughs) Just kidding. That's my fault. The fish thing is my fault. I was telling Pastor Marty when he was here, I was fishing the other day, and I caught a pretty good trout, like maybe 20 inches. And I didn't have a bucket with me, so I took that fish, and I threw it right on my passenger seat. I buckled that thing in, and I drove home, man. (laughs) Michael won't ride in my car. Don't negate your partnership to participate in the financial burden of the church because somebody on TV is grimy. You sow into a local church where there's accountability and leadership. I, I do not have open reins on the money. There's accountability to the way, systemized way that we use money to see the gospel come. You sow into an organization with accountability, a church, a body that is actually trying to reach their community. That's part of your partnership. And it's a shame. It is an absolute shame that many men in the church have abused the church for their money. It's also a shame that consumers come to church to get, a, get tickled and they don't participate in the work of the gospel. And, I'm, I'm, and, and I, I need to say this, and I, wanted, I want you as a body to embrace this. I do not sow money into the kingdom with hopes of getting back more money. I'm not asking you to start tithing so God will give you $10,000. I don't believe in a sow a thousand, get 10000 That's not the aim of my sowing. My sowing is that the gospel would be advanced in my city. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm on my pedestal now. I'm not, I'm, I don't like the, if you sow 2000 God's going to give you 20000 That propagates a selfish motivation. You don't sow to get more. You sow to give more. Because Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. And those who sow into the kingdom will reap into eternity. I sow money into missionaries, into the kingdom, because I want dead hearts to come alive in the gospel. Not because I want more cash in my bank account. Get it right, church. Get it right. And lastly, I'm going to close this up. Partners share in the joy of success. Jerry Ward leads our... I didn't ask him if I could share this, so I'm sorry. Jerry Ward um, leads our greeter team. He's gifted at relationship, loving people. And he was having a meeting with the greeters that I showed up at. And the greeters were just talking about how do we make people feel more loved? How do we minister? Is there things we could do better? And Jerry shared the story that he read online somewhere. Um, A pastor was saying to their church um, that when you look at John chapter 4... When Jesus turns water into wine at Cana, it's really a beautiful story, right? Jesus turns water into wine. You remember the story of the family. Most scholars believe that Jesus was probably a, a, a cousin or so of the, the marriage party because the family of the person getting married was responsible to provide the food um, and the wine and to run out was a, quite an embarrassment. And so some say, some scholars believe, um, uh, D.A. Carson, for example, says that um, it's likely that Jesus was a family member of that family that was getting married. And Mary was taking part in organizing the wedding. You know how you do. 
And they ran out of wine. And Mary says, Jesus, you got to do something about this. And you remember Jesus says, woman, you chill out. Um, and Jesus and Mary says to the, to the workers, to the laborers, you do what he says. And Jesus says, fill the water, you know, the ceremonial ritual jars. Fill them up and draw it out. And as they draw it out and they serve it, um, remember the people say, they've saved the best wine for last. Praise God. And the crowd, you know, that drinks the best wine, they're very blessed by the best wine. Praise God, it's good wine. But they have no idea where that wine came from. Those who are consumers don't experience the the miracle, the joy of the work of the laborers. Do you see what, do you catch the point there? That only the people serving the tables who drew water into wine knew what was going on. Everybody else just thought, this is really good wine. And there are people who will come to this church and will say, man, this is a cool church. This is great. Or they might say, these people are weird. That probably happens more than not. I believe we're going to have a move of God on this island. We're going to see the gospel preached with clarity, not just from behind the pulpit, but in the streets. I think we'll see the sick healed. I think we'll see people delivered. But I think the message of Jesus, the real gospel, will be filled and fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, as we, as a charismatic church, allow the gospel to be center. I believe it. I think many are going to be blessed by what God does in this church. Many will be consumers. But some will be partners. Some will lay up late at night and pray and fast. And some will show up on things like this food truck night. Will show up and take out the trash and pray with the people working. And some will walk around and try to start conversations and hope to have an opportunity to share the gospel. And some will sow financially and some will give more than they should be given because they're really believing that God's going to use this church. Some will partner, and those that partner will experience the joy of success, will experience the joy of salvation. Those who partner will experience eternal rewards on the other side. Partners are rewarded with joy. Consumers are blessed. Partners are filled with joy. So in conclusion, simply, what is your real aspiration? You ask yourself this question. I'm not answering this question for you. Are you a gospel partner? If you're a a regular in this house, do you actually partner with this house in seeing the gospel advanced in our city? Do you partner with this house in praying for our missionaries and giving financially to our missionaries? God willing, we're going to have a missionary, one of our missionaries with us in a couple weeks. Do you sow into that? Are your dreams surrounded? Do they, do they, are they Christocentric? Do they circle Christ and the gospel? Or are your aspirations and prayers and hopes all self-serving? Because if we are a church with selfish aspirations, selfish prayers, and selfish hopes, we will never experience a a real move of God. We have to be a church who gets on the altar and says, all of my life belongs to you. I will go anywhere. I'll say anything. God, use me for your glory, however you see fit. And that kind of church, the fire of God falls on. Who are you? 
Who are you? Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.